The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the Pokepress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. This episode has two segments. In the first, Anthropy Podcast helps me discuss the music of Pokemon Pinball for the Game Boy Color. The soundtrack for this one has a variety of sources, so we had some interesting things to talk about. To find out what we thought of the game, keep listening after the outro. The second segment is an archival interview with Adam Elk, who performed We Will Carry On back in 2010. We talk about his work on that song, as well as doing music for commercials, Yu-Gi-Oh!, and a few other things. Thanks. Hi folks, Steven here. I'm on the phone with Anne from PvP Podcast, and seeing as how we've run out of Pokemon movies, we decided the next thing we wanted to tackle, going back to sort of the beginning of the franchise, are the side games. Uh, the main games do get a lot of discussion, but we felt the side games were a little underappreciated musically, and we kind of wanted to cover them for that reason. So our first discussion here is going to be a uh, talk about the music in Pokemon Pinball for the Game Boy Color. So let's see. So Pokemon Pinball, obviously it's a pinball game. Um, it was released in... Kind of an interesting window. It was a, a time in 1999 when, at least like North America and Japan, were still both technically on Generation 1. Gold and Silver would come out in Japan later that year, and the U.S. had gotten Red and Blue back in 98. And as, as far as I can tell, as far as the U.S. goes, this is the first like side game uh, to get released out here. As the name implies, it's a pinball game. It was developed by Jupiter Corporation, which has kind of a, an interesting pedigree. They uh, have made a lot of uh, smallish, I suppose, uh, not huge epic uh, uh, Nintendo games over the years, but they've done a lot of stuff for Nintendo. Notably, they've done a lot of Picross games. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the first one, but they did Mario's Picross on the Game Boy and um, they're still involved uh, with the recent Picross games on the Nintendo Switch, so they're still doing that. And they also did Pokemon Picross on the 3DS, if you're familiar with that one. So they actually have really quite a long history with the Pokemon franchise. Um, from what I understand, the engine for the game was brought over from HAL uh, that they had used for Kirby's Pinball End, which had come out in about, I don't know, 93, 94, somewhere in there. And was adapted for this. There are definitely some similarities. Now, as far as the music, that's also kind of interesting because this is a, a very much an intergenerational game in terms of the actual music. Um, some of the stuff is, of course, from Red and Blue, but they also got to use some music from, let's see, uh, the upcoming Gold and Silver games. I think some of the, the underlying uh, melodies and whatnot made it even as far as like Ruby and Sapphire. And there's also at least one song from the uh, Japanese version of the Pokemon anime, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But uh, I guess I wanted to first talk about um, how we each experienced this game back in the day. I, I know I had this. 
uh, when around when it came out. I'm not sure exactly when I would have gotten it. I think I would have had it by the summer of 99, or maybe I got it for my birthday that year. I'm not sure exactly. It came out in like the spring in the U.S., I think. Late spring, early summer, something like that. Played a lot of it, judging by A, how complete the Pokedex was in my version of the game, and also some of my high scores, which I uh, was not able to top in this uh, the playthroughs I did for this one. And uh, what was your sort of experience with this game when it originally came out? I didn't get it until a little bit after it had originally come out, but uh, my family had an old Game Boy, well, it was new at the time, Game Boy Color that we played um, Pokemon Red and Blue and Yellow on, um, and our family friends had a Game Boy, and they had a copy of Pokemon Pinball. So a lot of times we would just exchange game cartridges. And I remember we had Pokemon Pinball for a while from them. And like, I kind of dominated that and, you know, pushed all the siblings out of the way. And that eventually I did buy my own cartridge for Pokemon Pinball so I could, you know, own all the high scores. And it was just one of those games that was just like really addicting, but also like you didn't have to be that good to enjoy it. You, you could only be sort of good <laughs> and button mash a bit and still have enjoyment. Yeah, it's uh, fairly loose as pinball games goes in terms of its difficulty and having the uh, the aspect of trying to complete your Pokedex gives you a secondary objective than just trying to get a high score. <laughs> By the way, if you're looking up a cartridge of this, this is one of those unusual Game Boy Color games that has a uh, rumble feature in it because it was, yeah. I guess, mid to late 90s. This was the era of the N64 rumble pack, so... Guess they want to, to work that feature into some of their cartridges. Um, as far as the music itself and who worked on it, that we don't have a good answer to. There is no <laughs> end credits in this game. Um, there's no credit sequence whatsoever. And obviously, since the game music comes from various places, the composing credits, I guess, are kind of all over the place. There seems to be some original music, some from Red and Blue, some from Gold and Silver, and even later stuff than that. So I, I dug around to try to figure out who might have done the music programming for this game. Let's see. One possible name I came up with was uh, Toshiyuki Ueno. I hope I said that kind of close to right there. But uh, one of the reasons his name came up is he's credited on a number of Picross games that Jupiter worked on from this era. And uh, has also worked on some other games, uh, notably Earthbound, which would have put him in the orbit of, say, Hirokazu Tanaka, who we'll be talking about probably later in this one. And also, he has a special thanks credit in, of all things, Pokemon Battle Revolution for the Wii. Not sure where that one uh, comes from, because unfortunately, I have not listened to like all the music or all the stuff in there to see if there was anything that somehow he had uh, would somehow relate it back to Pokemon Pinball. But that's that's one guess that we have there. Yeah, and if you want to look up more on him, you'll find a lot more information under his um, his pen name, uh, Gaesen Ueno. He seems to be credited under that name a lot as well, and also is a writer, I guess, for uh, Nintendo and some other game magazines, or has been in the past. It was a little unclear, but... Yeah, he's definitely someone who would be in the right orbit to have done this, but we have mm -hmm. I have no hard evidence that he he did that but he seems like a, a good candidate at the very least so i think we're going to structure this that ann and i are going to sort of ping pong back and forth between our choices we each chose a, a couple of different songs i focused on the red table and focused on the blue table and then there's also some shared more general stuff within the game uh, i did want to briefly mention the title screen theme which has kind of a 
round and round quality to it. We'll be mentioning it with one or two of the other things that we bring up here. It's not the most distinct things, but when you hear it, you can definitely tell it's from this game. Uh, and before we get into the individual tables, anything about the title screen theme you want to talk about? It's like, I mean, I'm not really on it long enough to form a much of an opinion. Like, I don't remember loving it, but I also don't remember being annoyed by it. It was just kind of there. I mean, it, it's catchy and chiptoony like all the others, but it I, it doesn't stick out as a special track to me. It's just a you know a cute little motif that loops. Yeah, it serves its purpose. This is definitely not a game. There's no actual like a track <laughs> sequence on this game either. If you leave it on the title screen, it will just stay there indefinitely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but assuming you do actually go into the game, um, you get choice of two tables. There's a red table and a blue table. I believe in the Japanese version, the blue table is referred to as the green table for kind of obvious reasons, there being the initial versions that they had. Um, So if we go over to the red table, when you start off a game, you sort of spring the ball in, it chooses a location you're going to start in. And the song that plays on the red table when all of that starts is a variation on the Let's see, it's, I believe it's using three different cities in there. It's the Viridian City, Pewter City, and Saffron City theme, I believe, is is what's in use there. And it's, you know, I, I'd say it's it's definitely recognizable as that theme, but they do play around with it a fair bit. It's got, uh, as I think a lot of the music in this one uh, does have, it has a little more of a swing vibe. And it's actually, to be honest, kind of a little bit laid back for a a pinball theme. Uh, usually pinball, if it has music, is, is fairly rapid because the ball moves in, in a real pinball table more rapidly than it does here in Pokemon Pinball. Any any kind of thoughts on the uh, main red table theme, Anne? Um, no, no, I just agree. Because um, the blue field, we can talk about that in a second, is very similar. And like a lot of songs in this game, it, it it's got that chiptune sound that sounds, you know, hyper fast and like you would think a pinball video game would sound. But when you think about it, it's really, the melody is much more of a jazz um, for the Red Song um, and and the Bluefields Field Song as well. It's very, very laid back, as you said. It, it kind of plays with the timing of the notes just a little bit. And some of the notes themselves, it, it feels very much like a jazz song, except it's going so fast and it's chip tune and it's got a real fast beat under it. So it's a very interesting mix. Yeah, I wouldn't call it the fastest thing ever, especially by, say, mm. pinball standards, but uh, definitely faster than the original version. Um, I don't know mm. if you played this game on headphones at all, um, but several of the tracks, including this one in the game, make use of the Game Boy stereo feature. Cool. And in this case, it's the... And that swaps between the left and right audio channels on the Game Boy. That was one of the things. There are technically some ways to get stereo out of the NES, uh, but the Game Boy was designed for stereo from the ground up. Well, at least from the headphone jack. Technically speaking, it only has the one speaker in it. But um, that is kind of an interesting use here as well. I have to go back and listen to some of these tracks now that I know there's a stereo component. Yeah, the the original Pokemon games don't make a like red blue don't use a ton of stereo. Yellow, I think, has like three different stereo options. Part of that is there's there's only about five or six different channels of audio on the uh, on the Game Boy. It's, it's maybe slightly better than the NES, but yeah, this game definitely makes use of it in kind of an interesting way. There, 
So, Anne, you, you had talked a fair bit about the, the Bluefield theme. Uh, do you want to go more into depth there? Yeah, so the Bluefield seems to be a beta version of the theme that eventually became Ecruteak City and Cyanwood City. So it's a, it's a little different and very much like the Redfield, it's kind of got sort of a, a experimental jazz type feel to it. Like I said, it plays around with the timing and the notes just a bit. So it kind of gives you that feel while also being much faster than that original melody is. It, it, they almost don't seem to reconcile, but they sound very nice together. Yeah, they definitely give a distinct feel from each other. It is kind of interesting that they used um, city themes for both of those as sort of the, the baseline, because they do go in different directions in in other places in the, in the game. Mm. But yeah, I, I think, like I said, I wouldn't... They they occupy tempo wise kind of an interesting like they're they're not the fastest most energetic thing ever like not sure exactly where I wanted to go with that um, they're upbeat but not as much as some of the other tracks which are extremely fast yeah 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 speaking of which sort of the next one I want to talk about is that each table in addition to having a distinct main theme that plays when you're not doing just moving the ball around the table without having anything special going on. So this being a Pokemon pinball game, you're, of course, allowed to catch and eventually evolve Pokemon. And each table has its own distinct catch and evolution theme. Uh, that's something we'll come back to a bit later. They use the same theme within the same table for each of those modes. But for, for now, I want to go back to the red table. The catch slash evolution theme is based on the red-blue bicycle theme, which, as you kind of guess, it's a... Much faster uh, pace song. Of course, we we all know how it goes, but again, it's got that much more swingy beat that uh, gives it a little bit of a different energy than actually riding the bicycle there uh, in the games, I guess. Uh, Does that kind of make sense, Anne? Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting choice because they could have just sped it up, just sped it up and made it kind of that chiptune game sound. And I think everyone would have accepted it. So I kind of find it interesting that they really played around so much with the rhythm, I guess, of the pieces to give it its own feel and flavor. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you want to compare the the actual to actually riding on a bicycle, the vibe you get from from both of these versions, it is a a little bit d- different. Uh, I, I think the uh, the game version maybe captures the like you know the the bicycle trail and the games. Uh, kind of captures that that downhill experience, whereas kind of maybe this one in the game feels more like bicycling through a city. Does that I, that just kind of occurred to me just now as I tried to piece things together? That is an interesting thought. Does that sound about right to you? That could be. It, it def- you're right though. It definitely does have a a different sense of location when you listen to the music. All right. Well, like I said, we talked about the the Ketchum Evolution theme for the red table. Let's go back to the blue table. And uh, this is an interesting one on in the blue table. They they pulled this one uh, from the Japanese version of the anime. Isn't that right? Well, what is the what is the blue table yes. Ketchum Evolution theme? It is Mizase Pokemon Master, aim to be a Pokemon Master, the, the opening theme for the anime in Japan. And yeah, I love that song. And it's so funny, though, because it was going so fast, and they have made a lot of just small little changes 
to the rhythm and some of the notes that at first I didn't recognize parts of it. I think when we were discussing before we recorded, like I actually thought it was two separate songs. Yeah, they don't use the uh, the, the the intro portion the of that intro. theme is definitely not a one to one translation of how the the song you know do, 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 that one how that one intros in there. They didn't really try to do it, but once you get to the actual like verse portion, the chip tune and and the and the original version more or less line up. Uh, interesting choice, I suppose. Yeah. You know, for the English version of this game, I don't think. The full, like, three-minute version of uh, the English Pokemon theme had been written at that point. And depending on how far back into 98 this game was in development, you know, they may not have had had that. But would you have been interested in, in hearing a, a chiptune rendition of that? We kind of got that in another place, in another game we'll talk about later probably. Um, but uh, any, any thoughts there on them using the, the Japanese one here? Um, well, I definitely would have been interested in... A- a version of the Pokemon theme specifically for this game. I'm always interested in a in a variant song um, because I have very strong heart feels for Mazase Pokemon Master. Like that works for me, but like I do recognize that for people who maybe hadn't been in tune with the what was happening overseas in Japan, like it might not mean as much to them. It's just it's just a different song. Regardless, um, whether it is Mazase Pokemon Master or if they had tried to make an arrangement of the English Pokemon theme. I, I think the fact that the songs being a, a, a legit, you know, single song um, on its own, instead of just like a little motif from a game, gives it a chance to go through several phases. And it doesn't feel as repetitive. Like, because as much as I love the bicycle theme, it kind of has its one little arc, and then it loops. Whereas Mazase Pokemon Master has that intro, and then it has the verse, and then it has the chorus. So it kind of it it moves a bit more, I think, than some of the game riffs, which which just brings some nice variant variancy. Yeah, I I kind of agree with you. I I also wanted to point out, I think when you actually start the Ketchum mode, it actually says "Let's get Pokemon." Mm-hmm. Isn't that isn't that kind of analogous to what it says in the um? In the lyrics, like in the when when Rika Matsumoto says whatever the, the opening, yeah, well, you want to get to get that does one. A, yeah, yeah, that's the translation. So, like, so yeah, it, it's kind of an extra little little note in the Japanese version when it starts and then the song starts just like it would in the anime. Mm. <laughs> yeah, even though I I prefer the English opening theme song over the Japanese one, the Japanese one aimed at the Pokemon Master is hardly a bad song. I, I really do enjoy listening to it as well. And it's interesting to have it in this game, yeah. although I've, I've mentioned in previous discussions or whenever I brought this game up with folks that you may notice that Pokemon Pinball is conspicuously absent from the 3DS Virtual Console. Um, the the follow-up Ruby and Sapphire is available on the Wii U Virtual Console, and I kind of hoped we had gotten it as like a Game Boy Advance Ambassador game since I didn't think we would be, had any chance of getting like the... Uh, main series Game Boy Advance games back back in like 2011 when the 3DS uh, had that rough period and they put out those extra games for early adopters. But this this game, the original Pokemon Pinball, not on 3DS Virtual Console. I don't think it's even on the Japanese eShop, although I, I did not double-check my uh, Japanese 3DS. There are some games that are exclusive to like the Japanese eShop and whatnot. Really? But, huh. you know... 
when in doubt, uh, I, I guess my saying goes, when in doubt, you kind of got to, if something isn't getting re-released or reissued or something, you might want to blame music. <laughs> and if there's any song in this game that might be an issue, assuming there's not some, I mean, they've put, like, the Rumble Pack I do not think is an issue. They've put plenty of Rumble-compatible, like, N64 games on the original Wii Virtual Console that just didn't support Rumble, including, you know, the big one, Star Fox 64. So I don't think that's the reason, unless there's some big problem with it. Um, and they've even put out, like, Game Boy Color games that make use of the infrared port and, and not bothered to patch in the infrared support uh, using the 3DS infrared port, if that's even possible. Um they just finally got the link stuff going, actually, there. So, I, I, in theory, I guess they should only have to get some sort of permission or release from, like, Hirokazu Tanaka, who wrote the original song because it's a chiptune version. And then usually the actual, like, arrangement used in the game is, is covered elsewhere. But I don't know, Andy, all that, that, that big info dump I just gave, <laughs> do you think that's a plausible explanation as for why this, this game isn't on the, the eShop? Very plausible. Like, it's why, like, a lot of shows, some TV shows, like, are so popular, but they never really get box sets, like, especially ones that aired on MTV, like, like, I don't think Daria yet has got its box set, just because there's so many music license hoops to jump through, and sometimes it just doesn't work out. Yeah, going back to television, I know that when they had to do the the DVD issues of um, WKRP in Cincinnati, as you can imagine, that was a nightmare. And they managed to get about 70-some percent of the the clearances for one of the releases, but that was about the best they could do. There were still a few important ones that they missed. And it can also be a problem, you know, if you're going that that far back with, you know, the rights have changed hands or or stuff like Mm -hmm. that. But, you know, it's a common problem, really, in video games, to be honest. Like, Sonic 3, because of the whole um, Michael Jackson and his friends issue they've had with that one. Oh, uh, obviously, the the Ninja Turtles games on the NES and in the arcade have either had to have music replaced in some of their releases, or I think they're just finally doing a faithful arcade, home arcade cabinet uh, rendition of those. Um, and that's caused problems as well. So like I said, not necessarily the reason that this hasn't uh, made it there, but a strong possibility at the very least, if you ask me. But mm. did kind of want to cover that just as a, a, a thing there. Lullaby by Willow for, I mean, Manda, probably didn't need those Jigglypuff samples to indicate what character prompted its inclusion, as the lyrics match quite well. The Puffball isn't the largest, strongest, or most intimidating Pokemon out there, but it does have another trick up its sleeve that it's more than willing to share, and the first verse summarizes that pretty accurately. As for the second verse, the primary Jigglypuff from the anime does appear many times throughout the series, making the term deja vu very appropriate. Even the chorus manages to provide a good parallel, as the repeated use of the song's title mimics how most Pokemon say their name when talking. Finally, the inclusion of the word capture in the bridge hints, unintentionally of course, that sleeping Pokemon are easier to catch. As for the musical aspects, while Latin influence might seem more appropriate for a singing and dancing mythical Pokemon that would come many years later, it is still fitting for our cherry pink balloon. In any event, what do you think of this adopted character song? Be sure to let us know. Thanks. All right. Well, let's see. Moving on to kind of our our next, uh, the next one I picked out. I think actually, Anne, you picked it out as well. 
whenever you catch a certain number of Pokemon, I think if you catch a Pokemon, it counts as one. If you evolve a Pokemon, that counts as two. You uh, Once you reach three, what will happen is you get to go to a bonus game, and there are about, I think, five different bonus games in this one. There's two for the red table, two for the blue table, and there's also one that's shared in between the two of them. One of the ones from the red table is a uh, graveyard-themed Ghastly Haunter and Gengar bonus game that's in there. Um, It's the second of the two table-specific ones. You have to get through a a pretty difficult Dugtrio one as well. Um, And I'll let you start on this one, since it seems like you had some very specific (laughs) thoughts. Well, I've still not hit this level... I, I think I remember hitting it back when I originally played the game years and years ago, but like I, I've been wanting to try to get to these this stage because these songs are so cool. They're, they start out like Gasly's um, is like kind of a spooky, eerie sound, but it's playful. And then Haunters is like straight up like aggressively chilling. I, I think it's the best. And then Gengar kind of has a more intense mix of the two i think like it's just this progression of like spooky weird heavy not bass i guess but like a a lot of eerie sounding music and it feels heavy and just very strange i love it it's it's not like the rest of the game it's very specifically a ghost theme track (laughs) Yeah, the way this uh, one is structured is you have, you know, a graveyard and you have to uh, hit the ball around to uh, get rid of a couple ghastly, a couple waves of those and a couple waves of haunter. And then Gengar comes out and it um, kind of interestingly, every time it steps, it sort of shakes the table a little bit and your ball actually sort of interrupts its motion a little bit and moves around in a little bit of an somewhat predictable but not anything you did type of way is the best way. And then your your goal is to hit Gengar enough times to sort of make it go away, and then you win the bonus stage. I actually wanted to compare to um, a game that was, well, it's, it's, it's in an interesting state. So the, the first two phases particularly remind me of some of the dungeon music in Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening, oh. which I'm sure a lot of you are aware is, uh, we're recording this in August of 2019, and in September, a brand new remake of that comes out on the Switch, However, that's not the first time this game was remade. It was actually remade as a at or near the launch of the Game Boy Color uh, back in 1998. So what I'm kind of suggesting here, and it may or may not be the case, I, I think that the music for this bonus stage is original to this game and not something that was brought in from somewhere else. I could be wrong on that one. But um, what I think might have been happening is since the Link's Awakening uh, was released the year prior, you know, in, in its color form, the DX version, that maybe that had some influence when whoever was working on the game, if it was that guy we talked about earlier, was working on um, the, the music for this stage, that may have well been an influence. Uh, and I, I don't suppose, do you have any experience with Link's Awakening? Um, Not a ton of it, but yeah, like it does sound a lot of some of those Zelda themes, those similar, like especially the spookier ones so like i'm trying to file back in my memory to Link's awakening because it I've, it's not a game i've played in a long time but yeah no i think i think i understand the similarities you're you're talking about 
Yeah, if there is some influence, I'm suspecting that whoever worked on the music for this game was probably playing some Link's Awakening because of the re-release back in 1998, <laughs> which would have been, you know, uh, released like six to eight months before this game came out. So it seems like a, a pretty likely circumstance there. Any other thoughts on this particular bonus game? Do you think this is the most interesting tune used in the bonus games in this uh, in this game? Um, no. Well, to me it is, because that's why I picked it. But I believe you had a different bonus game you wanted to talk about that is also very, uh, very unique and intense. Well, I mean, there's there's four other bonus games. I don't know that this is the one that really struck me most, in part because there are three songs, although the first two are relatively similar. Um, there's more playful ones for like the, there's a Meowth mini game where you have to hit a charm off its head mm -hmm. and then collect the charm and get a certain number to, uh, complete the bonus game. There's a, a pretty tough, uh, Diglett Doug Trio one where you can lose pretty easily right away. <laughs> that, that one's, that one's pretty tough. And then there's a seal one. I forget, I've seen video of it. Basically the seals will pop up every so often and you just have to knock them in and then get a certain number of, uh, of hits to do that. And then once you complete the first two bonus games for each table, the next bonus game you get to go to is a, is a Mewtwo one. And you can actually score a lot of points there, but basically it's got this barrier around it that you have to clear out and then eventually hit it a few more times after you've done that to to win that. And you can earn a lot of points in that one. Yeah, that theme. Uh, but it, that theme is like very like i like how it builds and like very jittery and then like the pausing and then <laughs> it builds again it's yeah very very much a chaotic theme in there in a different way than say the graveyard ones yeah. are okay well if you do manage to do well and you don't have insanely high high scores built up from previous playthroughs like i do <laughs> not to brag too much i'm sure there's folks who are better at this than me there are actually there's a high score table for each of the two tables in this game and they're basically like three different variants of that. There's one for just viewing the high score table. There's one for entering your name. And then there's a third one if you happen to get the high score on that table and are entering your name there. I really like pretty much all of them. Um, they sort of get more triumphant, as you might expect, going over up the scale there. Like the, the viewing one... I don't know, it's, it's excited, but it's also kind of leisurely. It's almost kind of like a storefront is, is kind of mm -hmm. the best one. It draws your attention to it, and it's just kind of a, a good theme there. It makes you feel not so bad about your game over. Yeah, there's obviously a game over jingle. This is one of the few Pokemon games, I guess, that has a legit game over. <laughs> Even though there's a, a similar mechanic in the main series games, it doesn't really say that. This one does kind of go through that after you lose all three balls. Let's see. Then there's also the, the name entry version is gives it a little more of an accomplished vibe. And I think it has a little more of a Gen 2, Gen 3 edge to it. Or at least I've heard people compare it huh. to some of the music in Gen 2 and Gen 3. But I think it it may well be an original piece. And then if you manage, like I said, to get the, the top score on, on that table, you'll get the, a, a different theme. And I should point out, if, you, if you're having trouble doing that, uh, there is a sound test in the options menu, which has kind of an odd theme to it if you're not playing any other music. But but going back to the high score table, if you manage to get the highest score anyone ever has on that cartridge on that table, you get this sort of like, it, it almost sounds like a march or parade type music, and it uses a little bit of the title screen theme in there, and uh, really, really shows that you've really... Uh, you know, come out on top, obviously, as it kind of goes around in there. Any thoughts on kind of the, the, the different themes there, Anne? Um, well, I like that it's a progression. 
I don't know, just that they put enough, I don't know, care into giving us our full dopamine hit with like hearing better and better and more triumphant music as we succeeded more. Like, yeah, they're just, just make you feel good about yourself. (laughs) And and as far as I know, there isn't like any particular like bonus screen when you complete the Pokedex or anything like that. So this is, this is really, really the biggest accomplishment that the game recognizes. I think when you complete the Pokedex, you get like a crown on your screens or something like that. Um, even all the time I play this one, I'm only up to about 125 to 130 out of the 151 in the Pokédex in this game. It's hard to navigate, like, to get that little thing to go where you need it to go so you can get the ones you don't have. Like, I think I caught, like, 15 Meowth, but... Yeah, yeah, we'll talk more about that in the uh, <laughs> game review section we go get to in a little bit, but a couple more things, loose ends we have to tie up. So, pinball tables have a feature called Kickback. And the way it works is, of course, there's uh, flipper. Re- there's lanes in, within a pinball table towards the bottom where the flippers are. There are return lanes or flipper return lanes. Those are the ones that go out onto your flipper so you can hit them. They're, they have the bumpers in between them and the barrier there. And then the outside of that, there are what are called out lanes. And that's, of course, where normally your ball will drain down and go into the bottom of the thing there. And, you're, and you lose your ball and you have to use your next one or it's game over. So some pinball tables have a feature called kickback, where if you complete certain tasks, what will happen is then if it goes down one of the outlanes, it'll instead be, uh, you know, pushed back into the um, into the play field, uh, usually by like a little rod that's in the table and and punches the ball back out into play. So the way they've implemented that in this game is that at the either the left or the right side, you kind of control which side it goes on whenever you press the left or right flipper, is a little Pikachu. Basically, to get it to, to work, what you need to do is there's a little uh, spinner on each board, and you spin it around, and once you get it high enough, it'll it'll ding, and then a lightning bolt appears in the uh, the score line there. And then if it hits Pikachu when it goes out there, Pikachu will zap it back into play, and it actually plays a little bit of digitized speech, both for that and also when you get the dual kickback award from the slot machine you can get. (laughs) And I I have to assume it's using some of the same stuff they use for Pokemon Yellow, which had not come out in the U.S. yet in in early 99 when this game came out, but had come out in Japan the year prior. Makes sense. And um, it's very primitive. It has, like, very little dynamic range, but you can definitely tell it's it's Pikachu. Um, Any thoughts on that, Anne? Um, It's cute. Like, it was really surprising, I remember, like, because it's hard to pay attention to all the little things that are happening on your screen when you hit the spinners and the various stuff. So, like, so there was that moment of, like, oh, gosh, I thought I was a goner, and then Pikachu was there. And it took me a while to figure out what I had to do to make that happen. But yeah, no, it was it's a fun little dynamic. I like it. Yeah, one one interesting thing is actually whenever Pikachu's voice is activated, like the whole game freezes. Yeah. And I believe that's actually a technical constraint, assuming they're using the same system that was in use in um in in Pokemon Yellow. Uh, there's a good video by uh, a guy I did an interview with earlier this year, uh Dots Are Cool. Uh, Retro Game Mechanics explained, uh, we did an interview about his work on the the cries of the Pokemon game, but he also did a sort of a bonus video explaining how Pikachu's voice is handled in Pokemon Yellow, and I suspect the same things are at play here. 
Um, so maybe go back a few episodes and then do a little search on YouTube for the, the Pokemon Yellow video. But I suspect it's about the same thing. Uh, very similar mechanic, by the way, also exists in the uh, Game Boy Advance version. But there I think they, if you get the, the double kickback, uh, you get Pikachu and Pichu. I'm not 100% sure on that one. But it is a, a nice little touch and a way to get, I guess, Pikachu to be a little more prominent in the game than it would be otherwise. <laughs> right. Um, I was just going to ask, uh, do you mean like they can't layer in some of these older retro games, they can't layer the song and the voice at the same time? You have to stop the song and that's why it f- kind of freezes for a second so that you can have that different sound file and then go back? Uh, yeah, it, it, they have to do some pretty low-level stuff. Like I said, the the Retro Game Mechanics Explained video will uh, it, it explains how the, the voice synthesis... It's not the only game to use digital samples on mm-hmm. the... Um, on the on the Game Boy, I'm pretty sure, but it's one of the the few there. As as time went on, obviously with hardware, there's more dedicated stuff. Uh, also, of course, digitized stuff can take up a lot of space on the cartridge. So, mm-hmm. but that I'm I'm pretty sure the implementation is pretty much the same between the two of them. That's fascinating. I'll have to check that video out. And, and then, of course, we have a bunch of different sound effects for like all the different uh, bumpers and. Um, uh, slingshots. Slingshots, by the way, in, in pinball parlance are the things uh, under, just above the flippers that bounce the ball back and forth in between. While we're still talking about the music, I did want to kind of bring up, uh, I had mentioned earlier that the Ketchum and Evolution for each table is the same song. Uh, each table has a different one, but whether you're catching Pokemon or trying to evolve one, you get the same song there. I do feel that was a little bit of a missed opportunity not to work a little extra yeah music into the game there i'm not sure i can't think of anything too specific um i mean i guess if they use aim to be a pokemon master on the blue table for for catch and maybe for evolution they could have used um 151 the the first i guess ending theme there i'm not sure about about that uh (laughs) but um you know they certainly could have pulled more and i know you didn't get to evolution evolution mode is definitely harder to get to than catch (laughs) uh mode Especially when you just uh, button mash. <laughs> but I think, I don't know, a little more, I, I'm never going to complain too much about, you know, more music in a musical variety in a game, uh, as long as it's done well. Right. Uh, any thoughts, Anne? Well, every time I think of like, oh, I wish they did this in a game or whatever, I'm kind of reminded of this little moment in that video game, The World Ends With You, where basically a character breaks the fourth wall and gives a long diatribe about... That basically sums up to, we didn't have time, okay, so that's why we just did the simple thing. So in my mind, I'm imagining all these game programmers just being like, we were already working our butts off, and like, you want another song from us? <laughs> so, but yeah, no, it would have been nice. <laughs> yeah, definitely on the older hardware, they didn't have as good tools, although maybe by the late 90s, they had gotten a little bit better. It's not like today where some th- music is just uh, like literally like a... Uh, some sort of sound file, either MP3 or AAC or FLAC or whatever, depending on the storage requirements of the game. Just have to open up the garage band and, and tweak a few things, yeah. And, and then there are a variety of sound engines that are used in, in modern games that are sample-based and whatnot. <laughs> well, I, I think that covers most of the sound aspects. Like I said, if you want to review this, um, yes, you can find some of the stuff online, though not in any official capacity. But if you have a copy of the game, there is a sound test in the options menu. Uh, also useful if you need to turn off the rumble for some reason. So our next one that we're planning on doing, we're going to stick to the Gen 1 side games for a while. We have a number of them to, to work through. We're going to go roughly in order of release, I suppose. 
The next one we have picked out is Pokemon Snap for the Nintendo 64 that came out later in 99. And uh, I think that'll be an interesting one. Of course, this is one that was done by, we mentioned uh, Hal earlier, and I guess um, as they were lending out the Pokemon, um, the Kirby's Pinball and Engine, they were busy working on actually a number of N64 Pokemon games. Uh, I believe they worked on the Stadium games as well as Pokemon Snap, and I think they did a little bit of work on Hey You Pikachu as well. But the next one we're going to pick out is Snap. Of course, this brings us our... um, one of our favorite side characters in the anime, uh, Todd Snap. And it definitely has some interesting music, although it's not as action-packed as some other ones. Uh, I do want to say this is a little bit tentative. Anne is uh, looking to see if she can track down a working N64. Um, you do technically have options to get that on, say, the the, uh, the Wii U or supposedly the original Wii Virtual Console, but that shop has since closed, so that's kind of a problem. Yeah, it's yeah. I don't think it'll be too too difficult. We'll make it happen. I'll I'll play through it again. Although I have very very fond memories of playing through that game. Yeah, Pokemon Snap. That'll be our next one. And uh, until then, Anne, thank you very much for being on. Thank you. This has been Stephen Reich. All right, folks. Thanks. Flying without wings is a well written song, but its inclusion on the Pokemon 2000 soundtrack is a bit odd. There is plenty of flying in the movie but most of it clearly involves wings. If you're willing to ignore that disparity, however, there are a number of lines that do match up well. We see several friendships, familiar and new, featured in the film. You can argue that characters like Professor Oak and Slow King lead reasonably solitary lives. For that matter, you could even say the same thing about Shimuri Island itself, being fairly isolated from the rest of the world. If you're looking for the most Pokemon of the lyrics, though, those are probably in the bridge, as striving towards the seemingly impossible is a running theme of the franchise. Even after that, however, there is one more parallel to be drawn. Delia winds up coming face-to-face with Ash in a somewhat unexpected time and place, at least for him. While this final part of the song may have been originally intended as being between two lovers, I find that it still works for the mother-son reunion. Anyway, the next time someone tells you this song doesn't match up with the movie, I hope you have some different ideas to give them. Thanks. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich here at the Madison, Wisconsin, PokePress PIRN Studios. I'm on the phone with Adam Elk, who is the singer of this year's Pokemon TV show theme song, We Will Carry On. And Adam, we just had a couple questions we wanted to ask. So first of all, um, where are you from? You've actually been in music for quite some time. How did you get started in that as well? Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, went to music school, music and art. And um, I guess I just never stopped. You know, I've always been into music, and I had a four-track in my uh, bedroom when I was a kid, and I drove my neighbors crazy. And you know, after right after high school, I, I just started touring and got out into the world and sort of did the real-life college. And uh, I have no regrets about that. I've met a lot of great people and played music with a lot of great people. And yeah, I I looked up uh, some stuff, and uh, you were in a group called the, the Mommy Heads from the late 80s into about the mid-90s. What was that like? Well, they were a high school band, actually. It's funny how that works. And uh, the, the lineup changed only dramatically once. And the second lineup actually just reunited again and we just uh it's amazing like after 10 years of breaking up it's like we didn't miss a beat you know 
it's it's like getting together with family. That's that's pretty cool. How did you end up getting back together then? Um, it, we broke up in '97. Uh, we got signed to Geffen Records, which was sort of like which should have been a highlight in our career, and it ended up being a lot of money and a lot of stress. And and then the label decided not to push the record. And we worked with Don Was and Jim Scott and all these Grammy Award winning people, and it was the experience was great, but. Promoting the record wasn't, and we sort of just imploded, and that was 97, 98. And in, and in 2008, or 2007, the original drummer passed away, so we did a reunion concert in honor of him on his birthday in Brooklyn, and we decided, you know, we, time's going by, we've got to do this again, it's too much fun. And so in 2008, we made, another, we made a record and did a little tour, and, then, and now we're working on more stuff, and... It's a lot of momentum for a band that broke, has been away for 10 years. Well, that's really great. I'm glad you were able to take something that was sort of a, you know, obviously a downer moment with the uh, the drummer dying and uh, turn it around into something productive. That's really great to hear. Now, how did you end up uh, doing the uh, theme song for this season? Did Was this a, a mutual contact? How did this happen? Well, you know, Manhattan is, in terms of musicians, and I'm, I don't know if you've been told this before, but I, I see it as sort of a, you know, in different industries, you know, commercial, TV, movies, it's a small industry, and, and once you get into it, you start seeing the same people around, and um, I made a friend with Neil Jason, who I worked with, and um, he did, back in the day, a lot of Pokemon. And yeah, he's uh, credited, I believe, on a couple of the tracks on To Be a Master. Yeah, and he's he's great at it. Oh, he all the right sounds and the right vibe. And he introduced me, I think it was 03, I did um, uh, Music to Duel By. Oh, okay, for Yu-Gi-Oh. Yu-Gi-Oh, and that was uh, with John Siegler. I'm sure you've heard his name before. Yep. That was fun. And then recently I've been uh, a bit, uh, proud to make acquaintances with J.J. Appleton. And I also know David Wolford, who... He's composed the last couple seasons of the theme song at least. He's incredible. And so JJ's like, yeah, you know, David's looking for somebody. I recommended you should go down there and went down there and it was a love fest. And, you know, and um, I think John Leffler was there and and uh, the song's great. So we just, it was real kind of easy, you know, when the song is effortless, you know. Um, all right. But you do a bunch of other stuff. You've done a lot of commercial work and stuff like that. Um, why don't you list off a couple of your clients that had uh, you had memorable experiences doing uh, stuff for? Yeah, lucky enough, um, in uh, 2001, uh, I met a guy named Joel Simon at JSM Music in New York. And uh, for commercial music, for TV stuff, he's he's like the guy. And um, I started writing around 2001, late around 2002. And basically, I just go in an office all day and, and I get uh, commercials that don't have music or have music that they want but, but they can't get. And, and I just write. We've had numerous clients. So we had Chevy for many years. We've done Macy's. I did a Macy's Christmas spot uh, recently. We've done the whole Avon campaign. Right now we're working on TWC, Time Warner Cable. So either you'll do a whole campaign where you do all the spots involved or you just do a one-off here and there. Do you have any favorites? You know, the favorites tend to be the the ones that um, aren't the big glitzy ones. You know, Uh, they tend to be... uh, public service announcements or um, they're, they're a little more artful. I kind of, I mean, when something goes, I'm pretty proud of it. You know, um, 
I think this current Time Warner Cable campaign is is uh, all great. I'm pretty proud of the work we're doing. So that's really neat, and it's always great to uh, get get a little insight into how all this works. Thank you very much, Adam. Anytime, my pleasure. Thank you very much. This has been Stephen Reich from the PokePress PR and Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, on the phone with Adam Elk, the singer of this year's theme song for the Pokemon TV show, We Will Carry On. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. We'd appreciate if you rate or review us on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. But I uh, want to spend a little bit of time here talking about sort of the game itself. Uh, we want to cover a couple things. First of all, we want to talk about our, our experience with the game mechanically. And we also want to talk about, you know, the, the Switch, Nintendo's newest system, has worked out to be really good for pinball games. We've seen a lot of them, both of real tables and also some fantasy stuff. And I think we'll, we'll discuss this in a little bit. might want to talk about whether we'd want to see a remake of this and possibly the, the Game Boy Advance and maybe even some new tables there. But first, let's kind of uh, evaluate sort of the this game. Now, as I mentioned earlier, uh, supposedly at least the engine had been borrowed from HAL's um, Kirby's Pinball Land, which I think itself is a, a variation of another earlier pinball game uh, that HAL had done on the Game Boy. And there's some definite similarities. I know, Anne, you haven't really played Kirby's Pinball, and that one is on the virtual console, though, if you want to give it a try. Okay. It is, as the name kind of implies, a, a pinballification of the first Kirby's game, where you hit Kirby around a table to sort of play out the story a little bit from there. <laughs> and I can see some definite similarities, but I think they definitely made some changes having played both games um, in terms of the way the ball moves and the tables are structured. Uh, one thing I definitely noticed with this is that the, the pinball physics are a little bit cartoonish, to be honest there. There were a couple things that I, I noticed that would almost certainly never happen. It's hard to approximate those in an 8-bit physics engine, but there are some definite things that would not happen in like a real pinball table. And if they ever do remake this, they might have some trouble figuring out how far do they want to go with that. But mm. Stuff like, you know, there was times I would hit the pinball and it would go all the way up one of the outlanes and back into play. Um, there are times where the collision detection would get kind of wonky and the pinball would be kind of trapped inside the flipper for like a, a few seconds or whatever before. And then like pop it, back. Yeah. And um, <laughs> one thing that kind of annoyed me is I think the very ends of the flippers don't always work physically quite the way I would expect uh, like the edge of the flipper should have imparted more force onto the ball than it actually did there. And like I said, it's you don't necessarily want to totally replicate it, but I feel like it could be better. I still really like the game and enjoy it a lot, but I think I, I maybe prefer, not that you can't take certain liberties, but more, I guess you could say realistic pinball physics mm -hmm. is, is what I'm used to. And if you play the, the Game Boy Advance follow-up to this game, that definitely has... It's still kind of cartoonish. The ball still moves slower than it would on a real pinball table. Um, unless you turn up the speed, there's a speed option on that one. Mm. But it definitely feels more like legitimate pinball physics. Uh, <laughs> any thoughts, Anne? Well, I have the same uh, problem in that it's sometimes difficult to control. Like, it's harder to control your pressure versus what the game actually does with 
the button pressing. But yeah, no, I always wanted it to go a bit slower because I was trying to control it a bit more and get some certain outcomes and hit certain things. And I, I have terrible aim or like it just it's hard to give it just a light tap instead of sending it ricocheting, you know, all the way up around the board. So can definitely see that in a modern um, adaptation of the game, it would be really nice if they could kind of go in and use some of their magic technology skills to kind of give it give you a little bit more control over it and a little bit more speed power or be able to take that away when necessary. But I mean, I'm also not good at pinball. So I don't claim to be a, you know, a pinball wizard or anything like that, but I have played a fair bit of it on, on primarily on the, on the Zen thing there um, that you can get like on the switch and a couple other systems. I kind of want to also, what was I about to say about the, Oh, it does also have sort of the standard pinball features of being able to tilt the machine either yeah. <laughs> left, right, or up. And unlike a real pinball table where if you do that too much, it will, you know, basically kill your ball and make it drain. You know, these this one does not have any such uh, check on it. And um, I know there's ways you can sort of do that to keep your ball from draining and, you know, move between like lanes at the top of the table where if you get the turn all the lights uh, one color, your ball will will upgrade from like a pokeball to uh, a great ball, ultra ball, master ball, and so on and so forth, uh, which gives you more points when you hit things on the field. Um, how did you feel about the use of of different locations from the games? As you may recall, when you start up a new game, you can uh, you'll randomly choose one of a certain number of destinations, and then throughout the game, if you uh, achieve certain objectives, you can move from place to place. And to get to some of the places with some of the really rare Pokemon, like the legendary Pokemon, um, you got to move at least a couple times. Uh, what did you think of that mechanic? Well, like, I don't know what my problem is, but I started every single time from Viridian City. Like, I'm not sure if, so I'm not sure if that shuffle actually works. <laughs> Um, I did manage to, like, achieve some new locations, like I got to Mount Moon and such, but, like, you yeah, know, I started every single game in Viridian City. I cannot remember starting a game in a different location. Maybe maybe I once started in a woods, but, like, no, I think it was Viridian City every single time. Well, I believe it depends when you press A to sort of uh, oh. hit the ball into the field there. It might also, if you leave it long enough, it'll eventually choose one automatically, but, yeah, I think that... Locations, I forget if they're the same between both tables. Uh, the Pokemon you can get are, are certainly different mm. based on the version exclusives, if I remember correctly, on there. Yeah, I mostly play uh, And that's blue, the main thing that determines so. it. Also, if when you go into catch-em mode, you need to have either like two or three arrows lit on one of the lines there that you do by shooting the, the ball around in, uh, I believe, a counterclockwise direction on each table. And if you get the three, you have a better shot of getting a rare Pokemon or something like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the location also determines uh, some of that stuff, uh, which Pokemon you can get and and where. Um, I think Vermilion City is a little bit odd in that it's, there's like a street and there's a harbor section or something like that oh, that has so you can more get the water. water Pokemon or something like that. So yeah, that's an interesting mechanic. I do wish it was a little easier sometimes to move from place to place because, like I said, to get to places like I think the Pokemon League and some of the more exotic places that have legendary Pokemon, you got to move at least a couple times throughout the game. And it um, is hard to control where your ball goes to make sure all the right things get hit or lit up. 
Yeah, I mean that that's that's a, that can be a frustrating thing. <laughs> I, I did find myself getting better the more I played it. <laughs> Let's see. I think uh, the other thing we we should talk about, I guess, then is would you want to see this game remade in say uh, a modern fashion with with three D gla- graphics and stuff like that? I think the best candidate for that would be the folks over at uh, Zen Studios who do. Uh, they do the, the main Zen pinball thing, but they also do some specialty ones. Like they have a Star Wars one coming out relatively soon um, in in their pinball series that has some existing Star Wars tables they've created before, and I think also some new ones. You know, would you want a company like that to have a go at modernizing this, as well as probably also the uh, Ruby and Sapphire one? That yeah, it could be fun. Like I would be okay if you combined Ruby and Sapphire and Red and Blue into one. Like rather than two separate games, like cause just because gold and silver like was really fun because you did your one loop of gyms and then you suddenly got a whole new, you could go back to Kanto and do that level. So I think it could be a really fun dynamic to, you know, beat red and blue and then get to play Ruby Sapphire or something like that. Um, but yeah, it would be really interesting to update this game with the new technology that has been developed. And maybe it would alleviate some of our frustrations about the the primitive nature of playing it on a Game Boy or, you know, on the old systems and the old programming. And especially since, like, pinball machines, like physical ones, are just not as prevalent as they used to be. Like, it would be nice to have, yeah, just an updated one that was, that reflected the game mechanics a little better. I think you're right there. Um, it might also, if they could charge a little more for it, maybe that would give them more incentive to work out whatever might be the issue with, if if there is a musical issue with, with this first game, this first Pokemon pinball game. But as I alluded to earlier, I think the other part is that, you know, the physics are, are kind of wonky. And the question is, how far do you want to go to to emulate that? But of the, the pinball developers out there, I think, I forget who the main ones are. Jupiter hasn't made a pinball game in a long time since probably like the Game Boy Advance. So I don't know if Nintendo would actually uh, go with them um, since they'd have to create a, a new engine from the, ra- the ground uh. up. Um, I do think that's one reason I mentioned Zen is that actually I, I a ways back I tweeted at them and they kind of they liked my tweet. I, I I know that if, if they were working on anything they couldn't say anything anyway until it's officially announced. But I think they would be a good pick just because they've done they've done realistic pinball tables. They also do some more fantasy stuff. They huh. do some of their their original pinball machines have like side mini games where the pinball goes somewhere else. So they'd have maybe a good shot at doing some of those those mini uh, games that we get there. And like I said, I just think that with the the Switch being such a good pinball platform, that if there is a time to do that, uh, this might be it. I'd, I'd also like to see, you know, some original Pokemon-themed pinball tables out there at some point. Um, I don't want to go too far into some of the ideas I have. Yeah. Not that I'm expecting to get picked up or anything uh, for any of them. Steven Reich, the game consultant. Uh, but there is one Pokemon movie with pinball-shaped MacGuffins that I think would make a good choice. 